0: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
4: Friday morning, the 12th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The agreement had been that the UK would leave the European Union today if a deal had not been agreed with the other 27 countries on how Brexit would happen. A deal has not been reached, but the UK is not crashing out either. As you know, leaders agreed on Wednesday to extend the deadline until the 31st of October. It's called a flex extension because the UK can leave sooner if it manages to agree how to do so. If there is no agreement before Halloween, well, there's no reason they can't get even more time. But for now... The crisis is over. Time for a Brexit break and time to focus on Europe's positive agenda, according to the European Commission. Meanwhile, British MPs have gone on their Easter holidays. We're joined in studio this morning by uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us after what it was undoubtedly a a very long week. Uh, How are you feeling this morning? Somewhat relieved?
5: Somewhat relieved, yes, um, absolutely, a little bit tired. Um, but you know, I spoke to I think it was this time last week and we were debating the possibilities of what might happen and the best conclusion really we've reached is that we're not standing here today saying we've had a crash out brexit we don't know what's happening and and we're in somewhat chaotic scenes so um we have the extension as you say um uh, somewhat made up word i think it'll be mm-hmm. in the brexit dictionary soon a flex extension. we have until now the 31st of october Um there is flexibility within that deadline and there are a number um, of conditions based on whether or not, obviously, they run for European elections. Um, as people will know, that the the canvassing and and the campaign trail has been on the go here for some time, but it's only really starting in the UK now because they have only really committed to running for the European elections. Um, if they haven't agreed and passed the withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons and the House of Lords by the twenty second of May, um, they've passed the writ, so that's mm. moving in the right direction, and you know probably some relief for. UK MEPs who are very pro-European and have been there for many years. But What does that mean
4: for us, Minister? How many MEPs will we be electing now, 11 or 13?
5: So at the moment, we will be working towards 13, I suppose, on the basis that the Prime Minister has said she wants to pass the withdrawal agreement and to not run for European elections. But obviously the challenge being that we've we've unfortunately been in this position mm. before where the Prime Minister has thought or been positive about being able to pass it. She hasn't and it's gone beyond the time and that's mm. obviously why we are where we are now. So in that saying that, um, essentially you're looking at 11 and if they are still mm. there. Um, and,
4: and if she doesn't have a, a deal agreed and doesn't run, or field candidates for the European elections, they're rejected, aren't they?
5: If they don't run for European elections and if they don't pass, um, well, then the new date becomes the 1st of June. So, you know, Mm. that date for me is still very much there. I know we're talking about the 31st. Um, It's in the back of my head at the same time. They have somewhat of a different political system. Um, They would have to bring it through. They would have to change legislation because Mm. they have already moved the risk. So they're starting to prepare for elections. Um, Obviously, anything could happen and that you could have a general election. But again, the length of time for these things to happen is generally longer in the Mm. UK. So what I see happening is one of two things, that they either pass the withdrawal agreement before the 22nd or they run for European elections. If they do that, you know, you might have a scenario where they have MEPs elected, whether it's from Scotland, Mm. the UK, Mm. Northern Ireland, and they're only there for a short period of time, for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, because if they then pass the withdrawal agreement or if they find another direction, if they decide we're going to have another referendum, if Mm. they decide we're going to revoke Article 50, then that obviously changes things again so you know the deadline but, of the but, thir- but,
4: but not in the sense uh, of a crisis caused by uh, no deal exit
5: Absolutely not That's and off the table That's off the table for now.
4: There's no prospect, realistically speaking, of a disorderly exit before the 31st of October, at least.
5: No, and I think the longer this goes on, the more and more less likely that becomes as well, because obviously you have legislation which was passed last week in the UK, which means that if it is approaching the end game or the no deal Mm. scenario and the Prime Minister doesn't have a deal, then she must legally ask for an extension. Now, you could say this is six months Ahead, Mm. there could be elections, there could be a different prime minister, that prime minister, whoever it could be, would have to change the legislation back again. And Mm. as we've seen, the numbers in the House of Commons are are not there for a no deal. Mm. So I think no matter who you have in there at the moment, unless again, and these are all hypothetical, you have another election and a completely different makeup of the House of Commons, which is 600 plus MPs and they decide to change us, So, you know, I think there's a lot of ifs, buts and maybes for us to get to a no-deal scenario, and that's why you'll mm. see yesterday the Prime Minister standing down some 16,000-plus people who have been working in the UK on a no-deal, costing billions of euros. They've now pulled them back. They've either gone back into their own departments or else those who are hired newly. I'm, I'm not really sure where they're going or what they'll be doing now because obviously they've told them, we won't have a no-deal, there is no work for you to do here. So that's, I think, for Irish people, particularly, for our listeners very very reassuring to hear and particularly I think for our farming our agri-community our our small and medium business our tourism here in the Boyne Valley region who were most likely to be impacted in a a no deal and a crash out scenario so I think that's really positive in saying that um, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty and I can sit here and say I really truly believe that a no deal is not going to happen but I've said last week accidents happen and, and things happen. So people are obviously still concerned and, and I think it's important that they still obviously continue mm. to prepare, continue to have measures in place. But at the same time, you know, work on the basis that we now have another six months to try and work with the UK for them to figure out what it is that they want mm. um, and I think one thing that we took from the, the Prime Minister's discussions during the week, now again perhaps she's been optimistic but she very much felt that the negotiations that were happening with Labour were much more progressed and much more positive than her own media would have led people to believe so I mean that can only be positive if that's the case. There's talk about a, a possible customs union, so that would mean changing the the red lines that she's been quite adamant on for the past number of years. Talking about changing the future relationship between the UK and the EU, mm. and again for us, for anybody listening, that could only be a positive thing. Very so. much
4: Brexit light.
5: Very much Brexit light. It's yeah. an
4: amazing situation that we are in this morning, in that uh, we were looking over the edge of the cliff. It was the 11th there, and now we've moved back into the middle ground. It's little wonder, Minister, that you began this morning by saying that you're somewhat relieved uh, yeah. because there's little or no prospect, it would seem, of a crisis caused by Brexit for at least six months, if at all. So that gives a lot of breathing space. That's if that's there was really to be good. an election tomorrow, would Finnegale return a majority?
5: Well, do you know, I don't know. Um, I I genuinely don't know. I think we've been doing everything that we can in the past almost three years now in a majority government that many people, some of our own included, didn't think would last beyond a year. Um, I hope that that's not the case and that I hope that we don't have an election. Um, We have local and European elections coming up and they
4: are always planned. Is it not a good time for an election? The Brexit crisis has gone into respite. Uh, We've uh all of the main political uh, uh, events were over as such. We're we're, we're in this uh, mid-term time uh, after the budget, uh, before the summer recess and so on. Uh, It would seem ideal to hold an election now.
5: Well, for two reasons. I I don't think uh, an election is good at this time. Firstly, I I think that the government should be able to continue to do the work that we're doing. And I think for people, a general election would Mm -hmm. be just disruption. People want us to focus on getting our work done, the economy is improving and we need to be investing the money that we are now seeing coming in from more people working um, into the, the, mm. the areas and the projects that they want. But secondly, when we talk about a, a six-month reprise, if you want to say, from Brexit, mm. there's a lot of things could happen in the meantime. So, as I said... But you there's know, a lack
4: of authority, isn't there, at a, a national level? There's a, a lot of criticism of the work the government is doing, unfounded, you would say. But because of Brexit, you've been secure in administration because the opposition has said that they will not force an election now you're in a situation where the opposition may feel there's the opportunity to force an election so why not beat them at their game
5: well i mean that's completely up to the opposition party and michael martin and you know i've always said this we've worked as a team Mm. not just with finna Fol, but uh, every single political party and independent um on the brexit issue for me there's still uh, six months here where the Prime Minister might Mm. reach an agreement where there might have to be discussions in terms of transition periods. The fact that we've gone beyond what was the set date means the transition period is potentially shorter which means the negotiations on the future relationship is potentially shorter. So there's still issues to discuss Mm. there. You also have the possibility that there might be further developments in the UK. So, I mean, for me, the six months is—is is, yes, it takes the pressure off, but it's still there. Mm. Um, in terms of of the government and, and criticisms, there's always going to be criticisms and, and opposition parties. But that's, it's that's what those criticisms. Well.
4: Of course, there is, but it, it, it's how that criticism could result in an election. We've heard lots of reasons. Uh, the children's hospital being the most obvious, most recent reason. Fianna Fail would have gone to the polls if it had not been for Brexit, or so we're told. Uh, now that excuse is gone and people will say, well, if that's how you really feel, why don't you go to the polls? But surely the government isn't going to let Fianna fault set the time frame
5: well the Taoiseach has already set out the time frame that he thinks would be appropriate Um, and he did so almost a year ago in a letter to Micheál Martin where he set out uh, the summer of 2020 so that's almost a year away it brings us close enough to a full term Mm. um, and I suppose it gives people the certainty in the same way that local and European elections are happening on the 24th of May we knew for many years that they were going to be on the 24th of May people can Mm. work towards them and people you know I'm knocking on doors now and and for the most part people knew they were coming up and they were happening. if you
4: go back to Brexit is that a a risk because there continues to be the prospect of the United Kingdom crashing out of the European Union but not as things stand until at least the 31st of October. You would assume that if we get to the 31st of October and there still is no agreement that there would be some further extension. So you could be looking at March of next year and then if they did crash out at that stage uh, the world would be in chaos let alone life on this island and that certainly would not be a good time for an election would it?
5: No, it wouldn't. But again, I think we, we have to work on the basis that we will try and find a solution, as I've said. But there are many things that could happen between now and then that would still require a functioning government in Ireland and would require that the Taoiseach, uh, whether it was the Thaonish to myself or any other minister in finance or, or other sectors, to be there and to be able to engage with colleagues at European meetings. Um, you know, for me, going back to the fact that this government is working to try and make sure that the, the, the past 10 years of hard work is now being felt by people. Um, we have more people at work than ever before in the history of the States. We have a balanced budget. We're working towards mm. trying to reinvest that money into services, into education. You know, I know we have um, this week had a report in the Children's Hospital, which... You know, really showed that there had been a massive underestimation as to how much it would cost initially and we need to get that right, we need to put that right and we need to make sure that this hospital is delivered. If you were to have an election now and to go back to your very first question would we bring in a majority? I don't know I don't know would we have a situation where we would have three or four months of negotiations and discussions to try and form a new government um, and if that were the case with Brexit still ongoing mm. and the possibility and I say this, a small possibility of something happening I don't think that's a good option and, mm. and I think you would likely if going you speak to of my of colleagues it. I think going would into think the, the autumn same. of
4: last year people were claiming that if there was a successful outcome to Brexit that the Tisha would go to the park on the basis of achieving that on behalf of the country and we're as close as we'll get to that for at least six months if not a year
5: Well, that was speculation. Um, It never came from the Taoiseach and it certainly didn't come from me. And I think he will probably, you will hear him reiterate again that his preference Mm. is the summer of next year. And as I said, I think it gives people that certainty. It gives us almost a full term and I'm yet to knock on a door and I'm I'm doing a lot at the moment, obviously working with our local and and European candidates to hear somebody say, you know, Mm. I love elections and love when you come around knocking on our doors and it's great. You know, they obviously want to talk about the issues that are important to them, but, you know... election for me would be
4: later on. We'll we'll assume that the Taoiseach, that Leo Radker will be the Taoiseach uh, come October of next year, if that's uh, when Brexit becomes, uh, or Brexit this year, or October this year when Brexit (laughs) becomes an issue, excuse me. uh, And uh, quite possible, I take it that Theresa May won't be Prime Minister. It's certain that Donald Tusk won't be the President of the European Council or Jean-Claude Juncker, the President of the Commission. And it's most likely that uh, there will be over 70 British MEPs uh, and uh, quite a lot of disruption to the workings of uh, the Parliament uh, in the course of uh, the next term, it, it would seem, because there's no terms and conditions uh, attached to this agreement to extend it until the 31st of October. Is that something we could live to regret?
5: No, I, I don't think so. I think if you look up, look at the makeup of the European Parliament now, currently have MPs or MEPs um, that are not pro-European and you look across the European Union and you go further east and there's an increasing number uh, of parties and political parties that are already in the the Parliament but that are looking to seek um, even more seats and and run for election again. Um, So you do have that disruption anywhere and we know that that's there in the UK with certain MEPs Mm. who maybe won't get into names but you also have MEPs that are very pro-European you have a conservative Charles Tannock who is there and very pro-European you have Scottish MEPs um, Alan Smith you have independents who are part of the same EPP group that I'm part of Um, and I had an interesting conversation with the permanent representative to the UK and Brussels he's somebody who's been who is based in Brussels and representing the UK and he felt that I think we would be surprised on the kind of or the kind of election that they would have in the UK that he felt it would actually be more pro-European than we've had before because there was such a focus and because the Remainers um, if you want to call them that are so focused on a positive European election and getting that message across so I think you might actually see quite a positive um, election but what you're right in saying there will be a new commission and um, there will be a new makeup of the parliament, and you do have a lot of issues that are now coming towards the end game of the discussion the the next European budget being one of those. the objective would be that the the main discussion and the main um initiatives and figures would be signed off before the end of the year and there's mm. a concern that if the UK were there that they would somehow thwart that however you know I think that would Can probably... Can the veto
4: who will be the next president of the commission? Can they influence the next budget? Can they disrupt how cap is allocated?
5: No they can't and, and that's the thing and, and you know the letter that was signed off by the Prime Minister this week it was very clear in saying that there should be sincere cooperation um, and that is why we have, it, although there won't be any voting on it but we have a review in June Um, we have an ability to constantly progress if they hire members of the European Parliament, you know, how they are contributing. But at the same time, you know, you, you have MEPs that are disruptive at the moment anyway. But I think in terms of their contributions to the Commission and to the Parliament and to the, the Council meetings, there is a lot of uh, qualitative majority voting, which means that they couldn't come in and as Jacob Rees Moggs is now suggesting, completely disrupt things, prevent the budget from being agreed, um, you know, prevent the Commission from mm. being set out. It might take a bit of time, but that's natural and that's how it happens. So, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that there's lots of positive European issues and, and very difficult um, issues that need to be discussed um, and the budget is one of them CAP being one of them, there's a suggestion at the moment to reduce it by 5% we're completely opposed to it, that's something that we need to be focusing on and working on because the impact it has on people here in, in this uh, these two counties in Louth and Mead would be massive so you know we need to start you know we need to start moving away, I suppose, from so much of our focus on Brexit and make sure that everything that we're discussing otherwise, that we, we get it right as well. So.
4: Okay, Minister, look, thank you for coming thanks, into Michael. us at the end of a, a very busy week, a very busy uh, number of months uh, for that matter, uh, but uh, somewhat uh, better at the end of this week than it was perhaps at the end of last week. And uh, thanks for coming thanks, into Michael. us, as I say. That's uh, Helen McIntyre, who's a Finnegal TD in Mead East, and to the Minister for European Affairs. Michael,
6: Michael Reid on LMFM. On LMFM.
4: As Minister McEntee said to us a moment ago, it is the job of the opposition to find fault and to be critical. But it's not unheard of to find political consensus on occasion. Politicians of all ilks will often agree that you shouldn't drink and drive, for example. Yesterday, there was political consensus in the Doll with the government agreeing with Sinn Féin that if you don't drink or drive... Uh, and take a taxi for whatever reason that you should be safe taking a taxi this is because of an issue that was raised yesterday during leaders questions by Sinn Féin spokesperson for Justice Dunka O'Leary
7: This week it was reported that a man had been before the courts on three counts of sexual assault of three different women over two weeks in 2016 in one case the man in question a taxi driver touched a 19 year old woman's chest rubbed her cheek and when she managed to get out he followed her in his taxi and continued to harass her and try and get her back into the car he rubbed the face and lip of another victim a 20-year-old woman before brushing his hand down the right side of her body when she arrived at her home he asked her if she needed a hug before he leaned in towards her to kiss her in another case an 18-year-old schoolgirl got into his taxi and he immediately began rubbing her leg and telling her how soft her skin was She managed to push him away and he tried to get his hand into her underwear. The woman in question accepted a call from her friend whilst in the taxi and tried to give her the information she could read from his ID. He became very angry, leaned across her, opened the door and told her to get out. She tried to take a photograph of him, but he stopped her from doing so. The man in question here, Tániste, has pleaded guilty to these incidents and his legal team have accepted that these were young, vulnerable people who were relying on him to bring them home safely. He didn't do that. Now, I accept that court decisions and sentencing are the remit of the judiciary, and I will not be commenting in a way that influences that, although you will know that I'm anxious for sentencing guidelines to be introduced to introduce consistent and fair sentencing. But, Tóniste, what I want to raise with you is the safety of women. Bail conditions have been agreed for this man that stipulate that he can continue to drive a taxi but that female passengers are not permitted as front seat passengers. Incredibly, this man is still entitled to drive a taxi and carry passengers, including women. This is outrageous, How can any woman feel safe in a taxi, no matter where they are seated, that is being driven by a man who has pleaded guilty to three counts of sexual assault? What mother or father would not be worried that this man could collect their daughters in a taxi tonight. It is unsafe, absolutely wrong, and our legislation should not allow it. So what is the government going to do to ensure that people who are guilty of sexual offence and these specific types of offences are nowhere near taxis and in a position to collect people? What message does this send to the overwhelming majority of decent taxi drivers and the checks they have to go through? If it requires legislative change, let us do that. Minister Ross needs to get on top of this immediately. It is beyond unacceptable and it is frightening that such a man could drive a taxi in Dublin tonight and it should not be allowed.
0: Deputy O'Leary, before the responds, this is a matter still before the courts, as I understand it, and it is highly irregular for us to engage in any sort of discussion about a matter still before the courts, notwithstanding the enormity of the importance ...of the case that you, that you raise,
7: So I trust... I accept that and I have... Yes, thought ...to what so I have worded. And the proposition that I have laid before the Government... ...relates to legislation... ...and who is entitled to drive... Well, ...taxis. Let us let, all of us tread very
0: warily here. I know you are looking for a more specific answer from me. Um, I have to say... ...as a father of three daughters... Um, uh, ...it is... Uh, ...important... Uh, that parents and indeed young people uh, can have faith that when they get into a taxi uh, they're safe um, but I think I need to be careful uh, in relation to for, uh, referring to any individual case but I'll try to come back to you later um, having taken some advice on it uh, if I can uh, give a more detailed answer to you Thank you Tanishda, Deputy Alira.
7: Thank you Tanishda and I, I suppose the question I asked was not answered, and perhaps I can put it in a way that you can answer. Ciancola, just for your own information, what I'm about to say, I'm quoting directly from newspaper reports, uh, and I will not depart from that. It is what is in the public record. Um, But the victim impact statement from the first woman said that she wouldn't allow her boyfriend to touch her where this man had touched her, and she said she felt scared and numb and had problems sleeping at night. She later attended weekly counselling, and she still finds it difficult to get a taxi particularly at night. The second woman was traumatised after the incident and lost trust in taxi drivers. She worries about the safety of others in taxis and feels ashamed for allowing herself to be so vulnerable. Tánishtá, what I will ask you in the abstract, if you can answer it, are you confident that the Taxi Regulation Act ensures that people who are guilty of sexual offences are not entitled to drive taxis And if not, will the government bring forward legislation in order to ensure that is the case? It's a serious issue, uh, the issue that you're referring to. Um, And, of course, legislation
0: should be tested uh, and, if necessary, changed uh, to ensure that that people who are are travelling in taxis are protected appropriately uh, and that people who are given a licence to drive taxis um, are appropriately vetted. Um, uh, to make sure that uh, whether it's women or men uh, who are uh, travelling in taxis uh, are given the appropriate legal protections that they deserve. Uh,
4: the Township, Simon Coveney, responding uh, to Sinn Fein's uh, Donka O'Leary in the Doll yesterday. Michael,
6: Michael Reid on, on LMFM. FM.
4: Now back uh, to uh, that 100,000 euro bridging loan given uh, by uh, the Chief Executive Officer to the FAI and why John Delaney stepped down to become the ex, ex- executive vice president. Uh, there's a lot of pressure with a lot of people calling for the board uh, to resign. Uh, Sport Ireland, as you know, is withholding funding of almost one and a half million euro. The Leinster Senior League has asked its clubs if uh, the board should be uh, replaced. And Three Ireland has said that the two reports, one by Grant Thornton and Mazars will deliver recommendations which must be implemented because it expects the same standards of corporate governments from all of the partners 3 Ireland works with. Let's talk about this with Robert Troy who's Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on Sport. Good morning to you and thank you for joining us here this morning. Uh, You were asking if the same standards applied at club level uh, specifically for Bray Wanderers uh, which had its own financial crisis. As would for the FAI board?
1: Yeah, look, we had a a very long, extensive um, meeting yesterday sorry, Wednesday uh, with the board and the former CEO of uh, the FAI. I think every one of the committee members were extremely frustrated uh, in relation to how the FAI dealt with that meeting. Uh, They came in to the meeting, they brought new documentation to the meeting that wasn't submitted in advance which is quite a, an irony given that the FAI themselves require any question that's going to be brought up at their AGM must be submitted in writing six weeks before their AGM. So quite an I- irony that, that they felt it was OK to come in with new documentation on the morning of the meeting to the committee. Um, and as I say, while we're restricted in terms of what we can examine, what we can question on, because... Uh, the state actually only funds the FAI mm. to the tune of about five or six percent of their annual turnover. The annual turnover of the FAI is approximately fifty million per annum, uh, and the state gives approximately two point seven, two point nine million per annum. So, our legal advice was we can primarily focus our level of attention on what the FAI does with the state funding. Now, we did try to broaden that out uh, in the fact that one of the requirements uh, for Sports Ireland to provide their funding is that uh, the general financial situation of uh, the FAI is in good health and that there is good corporate, good corporate governance. Undoubtedly, given the fact that uh, the FAI needed uh, 100,000 of a bridge and loan at a particular time in 2017, given the fact that Given the manner in which that was held, which that happened, um, obviously raised serious questions in relation to their overall financial viability. Why do and you think
4: it? Why why do you think it happened, Robert Troy? Do you think it, it was because Dundalk FC was demanding three hundred thousand euro?
1: I don't know why it happened, uh, and that's what we were trying to get to the bottom of it. Uh, the board came in, and the former CEO came in, and they acknowledged hmm. in their opening statement that they had a lot to do to rebuild the trust and the confidence of the people in their organisation. And I put it to them that they had an ideal opportunity uh, in the committee on Wednesday to commence that process. They could have come in, they could have been open, they could have been transparent, they could have been completely upfront in terms of what happened. And that, in my mind, would have started the process of rebuilding the trust of the people. Do you
4: think that the FAI want us to think that it was because Dundalk FC demanded 300,000 euro? I don't know what the
1: FAI want and, that's the, and, 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 and that was quite obvious On Wednesday, they were extremely non-committal, they were Mm. extremely evasive.
4: Why why do you think I'm reading in the Irish Independent this morning uh, that Dundalk FC demanded €300,000 at at the time that John Delaney made this bridging loan or uh, thereabouts? Is that a coincidence or who do you think has been speaking to the Irish Independent? Would it not seem unusual to you like that detail like that would be appearing in a national newspaper?
1: All I know is the FAI had an opportunity to be open and honest and upfront with the committee on Wednesday. They failed to take that opportunity. They now uh, run the risk of Sports Ireland um, maintaining their suspension of funding. They've already suspended their funding and Sports Ireland have been quite clear in in what they said, that they will not be restoring any funding until they are fully confident and satisfied uh, that the corporate governance Mm. issues in The FAI has been addressed and that they are confident in relation to the rationale and the reasoning behind the €100,000 loan.
4: Okay. well, Daniel Macdonald is reporting in the Irish Independent this morning uh, that Dundalk FC... Uh, didn't receive 2.2 million euro of European prize money for performances in 2016 until the last week of November 2017. Uh, Overall, they had earned 7 million euro. Uh, They contacted John Delaney on the 29th of March because they needed 300,000 euro for the upgrade of an artificial pitch and for some other bills. Uh, John Delaney said the FAI would pay 300,000 on the 12th of April if that was a Acceptable, But they said they needed money quicker and uh, the association sent on 25,000, then another 25,000 on the 13th of April. Uh, and then they received 100,000 euro on the 21st of April, which was four days before John Delaney wrote the cheque for 100,000 euro. Now, the implication in that is that it probably wouldn't have been necessary to write the cheque for 100,000 euro. If Dundalk FC had not been making these demands, are you concerned that this story is in the papers this morning?
1: Well, obviously, if the, the story that's in the papers quite clearly could have been leaked, and um, if that well, that's case, my
4: question to you. Let, let, let's talk openly. Do you think that was leaked to the Irish Independent by the FAI, and what's the intention of it?
1: The FAI have a lot of questions to answer. There is two um, bodies in now looking through their accounts. Grant Thornton being one, Mazar's being the other. Uh, Sports Ireland have said, and Sports Ireland is the body that's responsible for the administrating of state funding to the FAI. They have said that they are not going to be given any mon- any further money to the FAI until such time as they are confident that the corporate governance issues is resolved and they're confident that the money that they're allocating is going to um, the elements that, that 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 they should be supporting, and I'm talking that in relation yeah. to um, the, the, the sports development well, officers like, like to the length and breadth of the country. Would
4: you like would, to would would you like the FAI uh, to clarify if uh, they're spinning this story in the papers? Do you think that's necessary?
1: I think the, the FAI have to clarify exactly what's happening uh, in their organisation. They have an awful lot of questions that remain unanswered. That was very obvious after eight hours of intensive Mm. uh, questioning by the committee last Wednesday. The FAI, and the one positive thing that came out of the committee on Wednesday, while committee members were stonewalled for a lot of the questions we we asked, what did come out of it is it demonstrated quite clearly uh, that the FAI are hiding something. It demonstrated quite clearly that there's incompetence on the board of the FAI and as a consequence of that, we now see uh, some of their corporate sponsors asking questions. And money talks.
3: Do, and the FAI rely
1: on Sports do, do, Ireland funding sorry, projects so, so, that they so, run. They rely on corporate funding. I'm sorry, uh, Robert Troy. Uh, the organisation running.
4: Would, would, so, would, would you care to uh, amend what you just said or rephrase what you just said? That uh, you, you said it, it was clear that were hiding something. Uh, or is that your position?
1: But well, it was clear. They, they, they refused to answer questions. Now, when you refuse to answer questions in an open and transparent way, you're hiding something. They did not know in terms of... The, the, the
4: or you're protecting something pres- something the because, because, the the SAI, because there was legal advice, apparently. Michael,
1: can I make a point, please? Oh, I, I know, but I the, president, I, I... the president of the FAI came in and he couldn't even answer who signed off on the press release that claimed that the board of the FAI were fully aware of the 100,000 euro transaction at all times we now knew know that that was factually incorrect mm. they weren't aware at all times there was a few members of the board aware of that transaction up until it became public knowledge as a result of a media expose but when you we say hiding know,
4: something when you say hiding something it, it implies something sinister
1: They misled the public in relation to the 100,000 loan. That's factual. Mm. They were unable to give any further clarification at the committee meeting. That's factual. They were unable to say who signed off on a press release claiming that everybody was aware of that 100,000 euro loan. That's factual. They've showed themselves to be totally incompetent in their work. That's my opinion. And it's now down to Sports Ireland, and we have Sports Ireland coming before the Oireachtas Committee next Tuesday to indicate where we go to from here.
4: All right, well, it looks like there's some way to go yet. We thank you for joining us uh, this morning, though. Robert Troy, Fianna spokesperson on sport.
6: Michael Reid on on
4: LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
8: Good morning, Michael. And to everybody listening in, Matthew from Dundalk was listening to the interview with Minister Helen McEntee. And he says, from listening to the minister, it's still hard to know what is going to happen. So businesses here will still need to be on standby, Michael, and be prepared for the worst case scenario, even though that is looking increasingly Unlikely. Although when the Minister can't say anything with certainty, none of us can be certain.
4: Mm. Well, I I think the only thing that we can be certain about is uh, that there won't be a disorderly Brexit before October, uh, which is good news. Mm. There could be a, a Brexit with a deal which would be better than the doomsday scenario, but still not very good.
8: Tom from Dundalk says that he's now convinced there would be no Brexit without a deal. Especially when you hear that in the e, in the UK they're standing down the emergency plans in preparation for a no deal. That has to be positive news coming mm. from the UK.
4: Okay.
8: Uh, Mike, the real loser here is democracy. Says Jack. What's the point in voting when some people who don't like the vote? Uh, try to change it hmm. uh, by saying that they didn't, that the people who did vote in the f- first place didn't know what they were voting on. So you could say that about every election.
4: I suppose you could, yeah. Or you could uh, look at how long has passed since they voted, which is close on three years, and uh, the situation that has occurred in that intervening period of time. I think it's a very different situation than a lot of people would have envisaged.
8: Oh, no! says John from Draha to Michael. Mm-hmm. Oh, no! what are you mm-hmm. up to mentioning the E-word? Oh, no, yes. <laughs> mm. Have we not got enough elections this year between the locals and the European elections without having a general election? too? Mm-hmm. I think you're a little bit, uh, you're a glutton for punishment, <laughs> <Yeah>. Michael.
4: <laughs> That's a, a very good way of putting it, John. <laughs> uh, it's about the last thing I want. And I agree we've more than enough elections, and I mean more than enough. Uh, but having said that, we've been hearing for a long, period of time now that we can't have an election no matter how bad things are because of Brexit Uh, now the crisis seems to have passed where's the election yeah well Mm, Mairead phoned in mm. just
8: on that picking up on what you said to Minister McEntee she says Michael Fianna Fáil have been saying all along that they wouldn't and couldn't pull the plug on the government owing to Brexit which did make sense but now they have the chance they're six months now to the next Brexit deadline. Mm. So no excuses. No. There you go. Uh, uh, Pete from Dundalk says Brexit will never happen Michael. David from Navin phoned in. He had an interesting point because he's saying... um, was that for, no, no? Sorry, it wasn't David from Navan. It was another gentleman that phoned in. And very good point, Michael. Just wondering, will Ireland still get its additional two new European candidates? And if yes, will there now be more representatives in the Parliament in the if the UK are going to stay? Uh, so, in other words, you know the way Ireland's mm. supposed to be getting the two. But from what I can establish, Michael, is that the 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 two extra seats, the two lowest candidates' election mm. elected in Ireland, won't take up their seats. If the UK are going to have Mm. representatives, isn't that? I think that's what I was reading anyway over the last while.
4: Yeah, well, I suppose the uh, theory that we're working off is that the United Kingdom will leave sometime in the Mm. next five years uh, and they will be electing MEPs and then their MEPs are going to stand down. And then that that would leave, uh, I think it's 73 seats vacant in the European Parliament. They're going to be replaced by about 20 new MEPs uh, and 50 seats will remain empty Mm. uh, because uh, that will allow for expansion of the European Union so that when more countries join or whatever the case may be, there will be space available for them in Mm. the Parliament. Uh, But uh, as part of the 20 uh, that are being divvied up, they're going predominantly to the smaller countries. Ireland is to get two, so we'll be voting for two, but they won't be able to take up their seats until the United Kingdom leave.
8: Leave. So if they don't leave, they'll never take up their seats. (laughs) Yep. That's (laughs) That's the case. That's it. Mm -hmm. And then to David from Navin who did phone in and he's wondering, will the MPs agree a deal in, in the next six months? And if not, what will happen at the end of October, Michael? Will another delay be given then? Mm. if they haven't agreed. I I think think. so, yeah. (laughs) So it could go on and on and on and on. (laughs) I think so, yeah. (laughs) All right. Mm, mm. Uh, We've some response to the FAI story. Right. Uh, Tony from County Loud says, Michael, as touched on in your interview with Fergus O'Dowd yesterday, one thing comes from that committee meeting, it was the need to rerun the Abilara referendum, as it was known, to give some powers to these committees and tribunals. Are they virtually worthless as they stand? Mm,
4: so that the committees would have more teeth and.
8: Yeah.
9: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
9: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
4: The power to compel witnesses and compel witnesses uh, to give evidence and to to respond to to questions. A a power that was lacking at uh, the meeting of uh, the sports committee this week uh, and indeed has caused an awful lot of upset and disquiet. In fact, uh, you've been hearing a a little bit about how upset people are. Uh, These people spoke to you in RD. Um, I'd have to say I'd agree with um, Niall Quinn and Brian Kerr and and the the guys like that. That. They want a whole, a whole new committee and, you know, out with the old, in with the new. Get rid of them and bring in the new people.
8: Were you surprised at the way things transpired yesterday at the committee meeting?
4: Not really, no. Um, they've been hiding things for years. It's obvious, you know. I wasn't shocked at all. Well, I think that um, it's a terror that John Delaney was on that salary, I'd say, for the last couple of years.
0: And it's a terror. It's a real Irish thing now. When one little aspect of something comes up,
4: the next thing, they look into all this, why wouldn't people give enough about it if they didn't like it before now? I, I can't really understand that, like um, if they think you had too much money now for so you too much a year ago, and that's the way I look at it, but really I couldn't care less one way or the other, what happens anyway? I have enough to do to look after myself. I think the whole
2: board should be changed, without a doubt, and I think that uh, clubs are way down the line when it comes uh, to being looked after by the FAI Uh, So big change needed.
8: Were you surprised at the way the events happened yesterday at the committee meeting?
2: No, not really, no. I've been involved in football for quite a while and uh, nothing surprises me.
8: I think John Delaney should uh, resign. 100,000 that he give in, there's no answer to it they can't explain it and it's going to cost them, is it 1 million now because they're not going to get the grants, so yes, I think he should be gone Well I think it's
1: very serious for um, you know, I, I don't follow uh, soccer that much, but I think it's very serious for the football in Ireland, you know, especially after Mick McCarthy starting now, you know, I hope they sorted out now financially, you know but I think uh, Sport Ireland is only a temporary thing, you know, that they'll ..probably get their, their um, money back again. Well, it's very unusual to have the board, some of the board members there for 15 years. So probably a change every couple of years would be better.
0: They're all in it for what they can get out of it themselves. And I don't think they're really that interested
9: in the grassroots of football. And I think your man, what do you call him, Michael healy Ray, or uh, how anyone votes for him is beyond me, the comments he's making on it. On it.
8: And were you surprised at the way uh, the committee went, went yesterday?
9: Well, the hands are really tied. They're not a legal, uh, a legal uh, organisation that they can make them answer the questions. They can go in and sit in their hands for the whole time there, like you know, they don't have to answer any questions.
0: Well, I think it whole thing is a disgrace. Uh, I think John Delaney has been there too long and I didn't realise that the rest of the board had been there as long so I think they're there too long as well. If you don't change a board like that every three to five years you're going to run into difficulties like that. Do
8: you think they've brought more kind of question marks on themselves following the Oireachtas Committee yesterday? Yes
0: is the answer but I think there was always a question mark there. Uh, They spoke yesterday about Uh, the contribution made to the GAA and to the Rugby Union. The GAA and the Rugby Union are pouring money into the various clubs around the country and into their coaching and everything else. It's only in very recent days that the FAI did anything like that. Healy Ray was defending them for the efforts they made in Kerry and somebody else from Cavan was doing the same. But it's uh, if you could use the word spasmodic, they're not doing it in a general fashion. Uh, they may be going that direction, but they spend more of the money on professional footballers than they're spending on the young people of Ireland. I think it's a bit
7: of a joke. Like, a man goes in there, they have money, like you know, we have FAI money, they money. would say taxpayers' money, and he won't answer any questions. You know, it's funny, strange. But the, I don't think uh, the government, the, the lads are asking the questions. Yes, there's no power at all. They're too long. Like you want younger people in. You know what I mean? It's younger people. I did that as, I don't know, someone says 15, 14, 15 years, you know.
4: Interesting thoughts uh, from uh, those people in RD. That last man making that point to you, Maria, uh, as well, about uh, the powers the committee yes. had and the lack of power that yes, they have in yes. uh, getting answers to questions.
8: And people seem very surprised by that, too, Michael. Did they? Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. God, yeah. All of us voted for Well, most of us did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
8: a funny uh, mm. a text from John Andrade who said, If I trouble getting a loan from the bank, Michael, I know where I'll be going to. Mr. Delaney, mm. if he'd 100000 to loan to the FEI, he could afford to give me 500.
4: Mm. Yeah, (laughs) Um, no interest either.
8: (laughs) Another listener. Robert Troy is right. Why did they not answer the questions that were asked? They were simple enough questions, Mm. Michael. Uh, Matthew from Drogheda says uh, Declan Conway of the FAI in response to uh, Imelda Munster TD said that there was no one else uh, better that could do the newly created job for the FAI than John Delaney. God help us Michael if ever, if John Delaney ever gets a new job with another organisation, sure, so the FAI would really be in trouble. Hmm,
4: yeah well I think there's a lot of people would agree with that
8: A tweet, uh, how easy would it be to establish another separate entity to run Irish soccer?
4: I'm sure I understand what the idea is
8: you know, how easy would it be to establish another mm. organisation, I suppose, that would challenge the FAI maybe or oh, be up against okay, the FAI right, to yeah. run Irish soccer?
4: OK, that's a, a strange thought.
8: Uh, we had an interview yesterday with Jim Wells and we had a response from a listener who says, has that man stood on the border lately? If it wasn't for Southern Ireland, to the North it would be dead. There are hundreds of people coming from North to South every day. He's talking through his hat. He wants out of Europe and still get the big money as a politician.
4: Okay, well, I think he probably stands on the border every day as a a border-based politician.
8: In relation to insurance difficulties facing businesses, Michael from Navin was saying that he was listening to the interview with Lyndon Murray uh, from Navin about the cost of insuring her play centre, and he says that small businesses are in trouble because of soaring insurance costs due to the claims cultures he puts it in this country and wonders why is the government not doing anything to address this? It's not the first time they've heard about it. It has been raised for the past number of years. They could treat abor- abortion as a priority, but insurance reform is needed.
4: Mm, okay.
8: So we'll finish on that one, Michael. All right. Well, thanks for
4: that, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight.
6: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
4: on LMFM. Fianna Falls spokesperson on Brexit, Lisa Chambers, uh, joins us now. Good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us here this morning. I'm sure, like Minister McEntee, you're somewhat relieved as we come to the end of this week, and particularly today, the day, or the second day at least, uh, that the United Kingdom should have crashed out of the European Union.
3: Yeah good morning Michael and look apologies as well for yesterday morning for not getting to the phone and to be available Um, but yes I mean I think it's worth remembering that we came within 48 hours of a crash our Brexit so definitely I think widespread relief that we have the extension and you know the prolonged uncertainty isn't good either and it's already having a chilling impact on business and on farming but absolutely a crash our Brexit would have been far worse so I think you know Getting a little bit more time does give the UK Parliament mm. that little bit more space to hopefully maybe get that deal over the line.
4: Space to take Easter holidays. Uh, spokesperson for the European Commission saying a Brexit break, uh, time to focus on the positive uh, European uh, agenda. Uh, are, are we in a, a bit of a vacuum now? Uh, and is it true to say that there's really no risk of a disorderly exit until Halloween?
3: I would hope so. I mean, it would, that's not quite correct in that there are a couple of key dates before the 31st of October. So by the 22nd of May, the UK government has to decide whether it's going to contest uh, EU Parliament elections or not. Mm. So if there's no deal done and they want to hold on to that extension until October 31st, they have to contest European Parliament elections and they have to make that call by May 22nd. Mm. If they decide not to the elections and there's no deal ratified they will leave the European Union without a deal on the 1st of June if there is no deal done and they do contest the elections there will be a review meeting uh, around the 20th or 21st of June to see how things are going uh, and then working towards obviously October 31st so we have a couple of key milestones built in
4: the but, reason but realistically r- speaking uh, we're mm. out of deep water aren't we uh, and they've moved the rate and they are going to field candidates in the election it would seem
3: that way, but I do believe that Theresa May uh, and and most of her cabinet will do all that they can to try and avoid holding European Parliament elections. I think that's quite a toxic issue in the UK currently, and I don't see that changing. So I wouldn't completely rule out her, her getting that deal over the line. It's still there's still a possibility, and I think she will still go for a meaningful vote number four. Uh, mm, you know, possibly I, I know so, but, are, but but I think she'll try it.
4: But even in the doomsday scenario that you're painting for us, there the Parliament will force her. To to field candidates uh, because they won't allow her to leave without a, a deal.
3: Well, I'm, I'm not painting a doomsday scenario. In fact, I'm trying to be a little bit positive, actually. What I'm, what I'm saying to you is I think she'll try her best to get her deal over the line to try and avoid the election. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe the Parliament, if there's no deal ratified, they will contest the elections because there's a majority in Parliament not to crash out. Mm. Uh, so that's accepted. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that the UK contesting the elections, there's, that's not... So good for you, the European Union. And I think that, no. you know, no. France and Emmanuel Macron actually highlighted this at the Council meeting a couple of days ago, and that's why it took so long for them to reach a the decision. There is a concern across member states that if the UK are to hold European Parliament elections, we don't really know what type of MEPs we'll get returned from the UK. They could be very anti-Europe, mm. and they could seek to cause problems. And I can understand why that concern might be there, because what we don't want is Brexit, I suppose, leaking over into the next parliament mm. and trying to destabilise the European Union institutions. So OK, and I think I, and that, is a, and and I think that is a a, a real concern. It's a, cons- is a, is a good message to send. That I think mm-hmm. we, we do need to focus on the positive aspects of Europe. Okay. And obviously we're contesting the elections here in Ireland, and we're hoping to hold on to the two extra seats that we got because the UK were leaving. And that's in question now.
4: Well, very much a question. And I think that uh, is a very real concern and a legitimate concern. But it is separate somewhat to the question of whether there will be a disorderly Brexit or not before Halloween. Uh, There is a strong possibility, I suppose, or a possibility at least, that there will be an exit but with a deal. But there's very little prospect of a crash out, isn't there?
3: I would hope so. I mean, I think it's possible, but I think the most likely outcome is that either the deal is ratified or they'll contest the elections and maybe have a change, of course. But obviously, when you hear reports today that Boris Johnson and his team, you know, are meeting with the DUP, it does, I suppose, send a signal that the behind the scenes the new campaign is happening to try and replace Theresa May. So that's kind of going on on the sidelines and the concern for Ireland, I think, and other member states is that if there's a change of British Prime Minister, again we don't know who will replace her, we don't know what their position will be, they could be more hardline and again it's one of those uncertainties about the whole Brexit process that we're just having to deal with and kind of cope with day mm. by day. So my hope and my sincere hope is that she gets the deal over the line mm. before the 22nd of May.
4: But, but even at that, uh, I mean Boris Johnson or Jacob Riggs, Smog, uh, whoever takes over uh, will have their hands tied to some degree by the British Parliament, who will not allow the United Kingdom to leave without a deal.
3: Well, I mean, I would agree with you to a certain extent, but again, we don't know, you know, how that's going to play out. Are we going to have a general election with the new Conservative leader? Um, Will they receive a stronger mandate to deliver a hard Brexit? These are all of the things that even the most experienced journalists, politicians, diplomats, nobody can call how this is going to work out. So we're assuming, I suppose, that the, the most logical outcome will prevail in mm. that a deal will be done or that they'll change course but that's not guaranteed and i think that's that that's prolonged uncertainty is what's worrying people and there is a concern, particularly among the farming community, people living on the border region you know, that we still don't know what type of Brexit we're going to get or when and if we're going to get it and I think three years on, you know, I think it does leave a lot to be desired that we have this massive, I suppose, upheaval in the UK, this chaos in Westminster that really is permeating every part and aspect of Irish life and this island uh, and that's desirable. So from our perspective what we want to see is a decision taken Mm. uh, progress forward the deal ratified the uk to leave in an orderly way so that we can get on business in this country the issues that actually really affect people in health and housing and education because brexit is really providing a lot of cover well what about about health and
4: education education, uh, and uh, housing Uh, i I mean is everything you've just said a a really convoluted way of saying FINA fall is languishing in the polls and we're going to continue to use brexit as an excuse for not forcing an election
3: Well, I don't think I've ever been accused of saying anything in a convoluted way. I I consider myself to be quite direct. The point I was making, Michael, is that because Brexit has been such a dominant issue, both here in Ireland and the UK, Mm. that very little else is being discussed. It's dominating our media. It's dominating our political agenda. And the point I'm making is that if we can get a break from Brexit, if it can stabilise or we can progress Brexit, it allows us you know, as policymakers, as legislators to get back to dealing with the issues that actually really affect people. Okay, but the and that's an issue on both islands, actually.
4: The, the point I, I was making to you is that it would appear almost certain that the crisis is over, that either the United Kingdom will leave with a deal between today and October, or uh, that uh, there will be Nothing happening as such until October, and if a deal can't be reached at that stage, it's quite likely that they'll get a, a, another extension if they haven't revoked it or agreed to a light Brexit.
3: I mean, it's quite optimistic. I wouldn't share your view that everything is sorted and we're fine.
4: Oh, no, I didn't say woods, that.
3: Mm. I don't believe we're out of the woods yet. I think there's still a massive degree of uncertainty. Said so The key date now for us is May 22nd, because at that point we need to know... Are they contesting the UPP elections or not? If they don't contest the elections, then we are looking at June 1st exit without a deal. So there's still a lot of uncertainty and questions to be answered. And I don't think it's a case that, you know, everything is fine and Brexit is sorted. I don't believe Brexit has stabilised just yet. And as I said, there are still key milestones to be reached. And we are now looking at, at October 31st, which really isn't that far away.
4: Mm. So it's not that you have confidence, let's say, in Simon Harris as the Minister for Health. It's that you're so concerned about Brexit that you can't do anything about it. Or it's not that you have confidence in Owen Murphy, let's say, as the Minister for Housing. It's that you're so concerned about Brexit that you can't do anything about it. Is that it?
3: Well, Michael, I, I do note the cynical tone of your voice when you, when you make those comments. Um, I've already said on record, as has my party leader, Micheál Martin, um, that we do not have confidence in Simon Harris and that Brexit did prevent us from voting a no-confidence motion through the House. Uh, I do believe that we did the right thing in the interests of our country. What I would never want to see happening in our arachnids is that the same chaos and madness that we see in Westminster were ever to happen on this island. I think that would be a huge disservice to our country and to mm-hmm. our people. And I believe Fianna Fáil did the right thing in ensuring stability in this country so that we could nag- navigate Brexit you know, as a, on a united front, to ensure that we try and protect our people and our country as best as we can. And it's still my strong belief that Brexit poses a significant threat and challenge to our country. And reports coming from all angles, whether it's the ESRI or the Central Bank, you know, all of the reports are saying the same thing, that even if we get a deal over the line, n- never mind a crash our Brexit, Even if we get a deal over the line, we are still looking at a reduction in household income, Mm -hmm. a reduction in employment, a reduction in wages and an increase in consumer prices. So Mm -hmm. we have a challenge facing us that is not going to go away in the next couple of years. And that is even with the deal getting over the line. So, you know, I've made the point several times before and not to bore people, but there's no such thing as a good or positive Brexit. And we still have significant challenges to face down in this country.
4: So why not merge with Finnegale then?
3: Well, I think that's quite a flippant question, Michael, and I think you know the answer to that, and I'm not going to, to get into that uh, tit-for-tat conversation. Well, well, I, but I the don't point actually. is, I mean, we are, mm. we are holding government to account. It wasn't I a think it's question. quite accepted, it and I'm on the doors, mm, Michael, actually, mm. for the last number of weeks with local election candidates. The message I'm getting back from people on the ground is that they fully understand that, while it's a frustrating situation to maintain a complete, mm. completely, you know, useless and incompetent government, they also understand that we cannot destabilise our country at this point. in bre- Do you in, think it, that
4: like, they the will continue that, to understand I, that though I because I mean this is, well. this is the point so and it wasn't a, a flippant question right because that it's quite possible that it's quite possible that it, it, it'll uh, be harder uh, in six months from now to force an election or harder in 12 months from now to force an election so if you can't do it now uh, and uh, it looks unlikely that it'll happen in six months or 12 months uh, well then why not just call it a, a day and give up this opposition or so called opposition when you're facilitating this what did you say, useless government, incompetent government? Whilst you're facilitating this incompetent, useless government, why not join forces with them and influence what they do properly?
3: Well, first of all, our focus is not on when it's more difficult or not to call an election. That's not the priority of the party. The party's priority for Fianna Fáil is always to ensure that we serve the country and our people first, and we will continue to do that. Uh, Merging with an incompetent government is certainly not party policy. Make no bones about it, Michael. We want a change in government. We want a Fianna Fáil-led government, and we will do our very best to ensure that change when the election happens. But what we will not do is collapse our government at a time when we're at a very sensitive point in the Brexit negotiations and we need to steady the ship and ensure that we navigate Brexit to protect our people. And that is our policy, our mm. position remains unchanged.
4: They've gone on holidays in Westminster.
3: Well, in Westminster, again, that's a matter for themselves. And um, you know, Certainly, there's no holidays been taken here. We're working very hard to ensure we protect the country. And I do think that, you know, I'm sure MPs in Westminster, even if they're not sitting in the House of Commons, I'm sure they're still dealing with Brexit. All
4: right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much Thanks, indeed Michael. for joining us. Uh, Lisa Chambers, uh, Finnefall TD, is her party's spokesperson on Brexit.
6: Michael Michael Reed Reed on
4: LMFM. The scandal of uh, the overrun on uh, the construction of uh, the National Children's Hospital is well rehearsed at this stage, and uh, I suppose most of us know that it's expected to be at least four times uh, the original estimate uh, that there's been a 450 million overrun since 2017. It's looking at 1.73 billion now. It could go. Over two billion, and all of this is captured in the official official report from PwC. Uh, but uh, let's talk uh, about uh, that report and why PwC was commissioned to, to look into. Why the cost escalated so much with Jonathan O'Brien who's Sinn Féin's junior spokesperson on finance and a member of the Public Accounts Committee which has been asking uh, about uh, PwC's role in all of this. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Are are you surprised that PwC were commissioned by the government to to look at the cost?
2: Um, No, I'm not surprised that they were commissioned. I know some people had some concerns uh, given that they had some connections to the main contractor going back a number of years. But I think anyone who's read the report would see that they've done an excellent job, um, a very detailed report, which has looked at the project from its inception right up to the present day. And not only that, they've also looked into the future in relation to how we can manage the costs um, and try to keep them to a minimum.
4: And what does that mean in effect? £2
2: Well... There's a there's a number of areas where I personally would have some concerns. Uh, within the contract, there is scope for uh, construction inflation of up to 4%. So, in other words, uh, anything over 4%, the contractor could come back and look for that additional money. Um, construction inflation currently is running uh, in excess of 7%. And if you were to believe some of the economists, it could reach as high as 12%. So there is no doubt there's going to be additional bills coming in um, to the taxpayer in relation to the children's hospital but we can't quantify that but my own personal view is that we're probably looking at a figure in excess of £2
4: And the PwC view on this uh, upholds uh, the Minister's position doesn't it in that when he became aware of the overrun the right thing to do was to proceed?
2: Well There's a couple of things in relation to that, Michael, and I think this is the crux of the issue. By the time the Minister was aware of it, um, and obviously by the time he brought it to Cabinet, we were talking about November, early December, um, at that stage it was too late to uh, cancel the contract and retender. There is no doubt that if we had become aware of the overruns at an earlier stage... There would have been an opportunity to retender, and it may not have cost us as much, but PwC were very clear. By the time the decision was made by Cabinet, it would have cost more to cease the project and retender it. The difficulty I have is the Minister is almost trying trying to justify his position by saying we had no option but to proceed with the project. When in reality, if the right governance structures had been put in place from day one, Hmm. we would have been able to identify this overrun at a much earlier stage and we could have taken um, steps to minimise it.
4: Well, the Minister was saying there were three options. Uh, I think uh, that it could have been re-tendered or cancelled as uh, the case may be but he decided to proceed uh, and uh, he's happy to uh, have done that and uh, as you say that's a decision he made when he became aware of it but you're contending that he should have been aware of the problems and the overrun earlier.
2: Well we do know because we know from the governance structures um, that you had the development board was the main board that made all of the decisions. That board was appointed by the Minister f- uh, for Health and um, he put and um, well he claims he put people on that board with the expertise and the experience uh, to ensure that issues like this wouldn't arise. And if they did arise, they would take steps to counter that. But above the development board, there was two other um, bodies which had oversight. You had the project board, uh, the program project board, uh, and you had the steering committee. Both of those Um, were there to actually oversee the work of the development board. And sitting on those steering group in particular were officials from the Department of Health and the officials from the Department of Public Expenditure. So you actually had the Secretary General of the Department of Health, which was the sponsoring body, who was aware of the overruns as early as March and April, Um, you you actually had um, an individual from the Department of Health in the minutes asking that a memo would be sent to the Minister um, in April um, updating the government on the potential of overruns uh, coming in over the next couple of months. That memo did not go to the Minister it did not reach him until the end of August and at that stage it was too late to reverse any decisions which had been taken. Uh, um And
4: what happened? I mean, what's at the root of all this? Uh, do you think uh, that the contractors were looking out a very big window and saw the project board, the steering committee, and the development board coming with government checks? Um,
2: that that may have been an element of it. I, I don't know if that's that's the main reason. I think this was flawed from the very start. The procurement, the, the PwC report talks uh, has a whole chapter on the procurement process. It was the first time in the history of the state that any public project um, actually used this type of procurement, this tendering process, this two-stage tendering process, where you were actually pricing a project without a detailed design. Um, the PwC report criticises that there was not enough um, focus given on uh, the risk management. Um, so from the very very start, it was actually there was an underestimation of the cost. And they only crystallised as the project became, you know, out of phase one and started going into phase two. When we started doing the detailed design for phase two, a lot of these issues started coming to the fore. And so it was flawed from the very start, in my opinion. And... The sponsoring body, the Department of Health, and the political responsibility for that lies with the Minister for Health, Simon Harris. And okay. And literally took the eye off the ball.
4: But, but in terms of the report, you're happy with how PwC has reported on this and don't believe that there is a, a conflict uh, of interest or any question of a, a conflict of interest because of how it would have advised on uh, the second phase of the project uh, because that's a, a question other committee members are asking.
2: No, I don't believe there was a conflict of interest. I mean, I think, I mean, I've read the report, Mm. I've read it twice, actually, and, I mean, it's very clear they did a very thorough job. Um, There's an appendices to the report, given a a list of all the people they interviewed, all the documentation they received. Nobody could question that this was a very thorough report, and even the recommendations and the findings of the report indicate that they did a a pretty good job, in my opinion.
4: All right, so if I could ask... uh Silly question or um an obvious question, if you like, uh, what difference will this make to the rest of us? Uh, like they're I'm, talking about ninety nine million euro worth of uh, government cuts uh, so how will we feel that
2: Well we're going to feel it we know that there's uh, ninety nine million um has been uh, has to be found this year to plug the hole, and um, that's going to be the same next year and probably the year after and the year after we're talking about four hundred and fifty million. Um, How it's going to affect us is there's a number of projects right throughout the state which are now going to be delayed. I mean, for instance, uh, we've had 3 million cut from the um, flood prevention scheme. Now, there are hundreds of flood prevention schemes waiting to commence right throughout the state. Uh, Some of them are now going to be put on the long finger. We know there's about 24 million coming out of the health capital budget in terms of uh, projects which were now going to be delayed. Government will argue that those projects were going to be delayed anyway, mm. so they're not being delayed because of the children's hospital.
4: Will we feel it? Because uh, I mean, I suppose uh, if you were trying to look at, at this in a, a positive light, uh, you'd say you can't miss what you didn't have.
2: Well, I, I put it like this, this: if there's an overrun of four hundred and fifty million, regardless of uh, where that money is going to be found and what departments is going to be found, it's four hundred and fifty million which could have been spent better on other public services, which will now not be spent in them, whether it's housing, whether it's community facilities, whether it's health facilities. You can't just magic 450 million over the year. It is going to impact on the quality of services that people would have have enjoyed if they did not have to come up with this extra 450.
4: And will people make that connection? Will people say, my house is flooded? Why did you spend so much money on the children's
2: hospital? I would hope people would make that connection because, I mean, that is the reality of it. There's £450 million, which is now going to be spent on the children's hospital, which would have been earmarked for other public services, um, and that's now not going to be spent. Uh, how how it's going to actually impact on their day-to-day life, it's hard to quantify, but it's still £450 million. It's going to have some impact on somebody somewhere.
4: OK. live we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin's uh, junior spokesperson on finance, Jonathan O'Brien, is a TD for Cork North Central.
6: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
4: FM. Half of uh, the people in receipt of HAP social housing supports are paying top-ups to their landlords, according to Threshold. John Mark McCafferty is uh, the chief executive of Threshold. He joins us now. Good morning to you, John Mark, and uh, thanks uh, for your time. And uh, these are significant uh, amounts of money in some cases. It's from €20 to €575 a a month. The average is €177, I understand. Uh, But this is money that shouldn't be paid. Is that right?
9: Well, um, good morning, uh, Michael. Um, top ups are allowed um, as part of the housing assistance payment. Um, and, you know, we, we did this piece of research and we found that, you know, I have to say at the outset that we found that three quarters of the uh, survey respondents and the respondents that we've worked with, uh, tenants that are threshold um, clients, 75% are satisfied with the scheme. But um, clearly there are financial issues associated with this because um, top ups are, are, if you like, are built in um, to enable um, renters to access um, accommodation that, that is a little bit more equitable, is, can be substantially more expensive mm-hmm. than, um, say for example, what uh, they, they would normally be able to kind of um, afford. Now, just to give you a, a kind of a sense of things, um, the the tenants that we were, were talking about were uh, topping up from say, um, as little, well, 20%, 20 euro um, top up right through to almost 600 euro hmm. a month now um but
4: that's on top of what the tenant is already paying to the council is it uh, because if you're yeah. getting hap let's say you're paying 500 uh, in rent uh, you may uh, the landlord may be given 450 and the, the tenant may pay 50 for example
9: yeah. Now the housing assistance payment is designed um, to mimic the um, local authority social housing system in the sense that um, if you're eligible for the housing assistance payment, um, and it, say for example you're not paying top ups, and some people you know aren't paying top ups, then, then what you're paying is the differential rent. Uh, and the differential rent is um based on the the income of the household that are in the uh, the home um mm. and that's the same as um the system that um, local authority tenants pay; they pay this differential rent. It, mm. it differs across local authorities, mm-hmm. but it means that it's um, based on the ability to pay.
4: And what their, it means, I suppose, is one person could be paying fifty euro to the council a, a, a month for their rent, uh, and their next door neighbour may be living in an identical house, but they're working, and because of their income, they could be paying two or three hundred a month.
9: Exactly. Right. So it's related to the income of a given household.
4: So you're paying money to the council and the council is paying the landlord and that together makes up for the cost of the rent. But then some of the tenants are paying money on top of that to the landlord.
9: Yeah. And we found that like one fifth of those who are in receipt of HAP in our survey were paying actually close to a third of their net income on top ups. Um, And that was uh, given that they they actually are eligible for the housing assistance payment. And indeed, in one in 10 of all cases, we found that um, renters were paying more than 40% of their income on rent top-ups of their net income.
4: And that's allowed?
9: Well, it happens. Um, Local authorities will say that they um, do their best to ensure that that level of financial stress isn't experienced by... um, by renters that when they, they do their assessment for the housing assistance payment, um, what's this, the design of the housing assistance payment and you know their interactions with the, the tenant will, um, will try and negate the risk mm. of tenants being so financially under stress. However, given how little uh, availability there is of um, rented accommodation and given the, the level of rents um, across the country, uh, including you know mm. Lows and Me's in the northeast, mm-hmm. um, tenants, you know, they'll they really need access to housing, so they'll pay more than uh, than was designed or anticipated by the housing assistance payment in order to access accommodation. And indeed, you know, where a landlord then increases um, rents, even if it's within the rent pressure zone um, mm. uh, areas, uh, of which you know. Um, conscious that some of uh, the northeast is, is covered, you know, Drogheda and mm-hmm. kind of East Mays. Um
4: Navin most recently, yes. Yeah, no. Navin
9: most recently. Uh, I mean, you know, what you find is that people are reticent to, to go back to the authorities and say actually, um, I have a, a, an increased rent um, and, uh, you know, I, I need my HAP to reflect that because mm. um, the, the rent, the HAP limits are such that, um you know, local authorities may decide, well actually, um, you're well over your, you know, the HAP limits and the affordability limits, so therefore we're not granting you the housing assistance payment anymore in respect of that, that tenancy. And that tenancy is therefore at risk. But so people are caught in a bit of a bind.
4: Well, there's certainly a bit of a, a bind, and uh, the HAP is obviously well below what's needed. If the council is paying so much uh, to the landlord and the tenant is paying so much to the council, uh, and that doesn't cover it because the tenant then has to go and give as much as €600 euro on top of that to the landlord, there's obviously a real problem.
9: And what we've found is that people are worried about... Um, how they can afford all the other things. You know, if they're prioritizing the rent in order to stay in their homes, then they're worried about um, budgeting for, you know, utility costs, school and education-related costs, mm. health costs, as well as all of those, um, you know, um, everyday costs um, that we, for, for things, for goods and services mm. and, 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 and leisure. Um, and that's on top of um, families worried about, well, you know, is the is the landlord ultimately going to sell the property, or you know, is someone going to move in, or you know, are the mm. uh, is the does the landlord intend to do substantial renovation? And all of these these things can mean the end of a tenancy, uh, regardless of the of the behaviour of the tenant. So mm. th- there are a number of kind of stresses and strains facing um, tenants, especially on HAP, even though it's classified as being uh, a social housing in the eyes of government. It
4: it would seem fairly logical that the rent allowance or the HAP payment, uh, as it's called, is not high enough if people are having to top it up by so much. But why is that the case for half of HAP tenants and not the case for the other
9: half? Well, I guess it depends on where um, people live and it depends on the local conditions um and i suppose it also also um relates to the income of um renters because the difference between the housing assistance payment and rent supplement is that um you can be eligible for the housing assistance payment and you can be working you know and and your take home pay can be you know significant mm. whereas um with the rent supplement uh, arrangement, um you very quickly became uh, ineligible for a further rent supplement um as you as you earned more so you find that um people have varying levels of income on the housing assistance payment, which is uh, compared to i guess um rent supplement where most people were dependent on a kind of a social welfare payment, so it was a kind of a leveler in, in one way. way um so people find themselves both across the country. Um, dealing with different um, rent levels um, and also different abilities to pay based on their net income
4: uh, And is it that uh, all the renters in Dublin all the HAP tenants in Dublin or Drogheda or Ashburner, let's say where uh, uh, rents are high are, are topping it up and uh, in Leitrim or Roscommon they're not
9: um there's no guarantee that you won't have to top up in places with you know lower housing pressure um by and large yeah it's probably less likely and some are likely to Roscommon. risk common um but there's no guarantee that you'll be free from top ups um it's probably more likely in the, in the areas of higher kind of housing demand higher housing pressure like Ashburn like Dunchalkman like Navan uh, and and Drogheda that um you know, the rent levels are already high, notwithstanding the fact that they've been de- designated rent pressure zones at various times. Okay. Um, and it, it really depends, again, on, on the um, the purchasing power and the income of, of, of the household. So, mm-hmm. as I say, it's very mixed. Some people, you know, have uh, an extremely positive experience of HAP um, and don't have top-up issues. But uh, in terms of our research when we went back to clients that we'd assisted and ad- advised in in recent months um, you know we have one in five saying that they are at that kind of if you like housing poverty limit of 30 percent 30 percent of their of their mm-hmm. net income yeah. being used on rent and then one in ten being in very deep in um, financial pressure with 40 percent of the net income okay. on the top ups And and that means that people are running to stand still in terms of trying to budget for all the other household outgoings and also kind of worrying, well, you know, is this tenancy secure? How long do I have this tenancy? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, there's a lot of people in that kind of twilight zone that we're assisting and working with.
4: OK, I have to leave it there. I've run out of time. But thank you for your time and for joining us uh, this morning. John Mark McCafferty is uh, the chief executive of Threshold. I hope you listening have a, a lovely weekend. And God willing, we'll see for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast.
9: Tune in weekdays from 9 on
6: LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality. With a Cartmacross Credit Union Holiday Loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross, Or caracomacrosscu.ie